Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. This week, there has been somewhat of a shortage of new films. And it seems to be because this weekend is sandwiched in between last weekend where we had uh, Top Gun Maverick, which was sure to be a big hit during the Memorial Day weekend, and it was. I spoke to a lot of people who saw this movie, and they loved it. And next weekend is going to be the next Jurassic World movie, which they say they say is going to be the final Jurassic uh, World movie or the in the Jurassic Park franchise, especially considering that of the five movies that have been released so far, two of them have been better than average. I mean, the first Jurassic Park, there's no denying that that was great. But I'll get into uh, my Jurassic Park slash world uh, commentary a little bit later, particularly towards the end of the show when I do my What's Coming Up Next segment. For this week, I have one brand new movie, and that movie was released on uh, streaming, specifically Disney+. And I'll get to that in a moment. But the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is the only movie that I saw in theaters this week. It's not technically brand new in that it was released this past weekend. It was released a couple of weeks ago uh, via, well, in theaters, but it I didn't actually get a chance to see it until now. The movie is called Montana Story, and it doesn't have many famous actors in it, or at least not household names. It has some experienced actors, though. It was, however, written and directed by Scott McGeehee and David Siegel, and it is actually based on an original story and screenplay written by Scott McGeehee and David Siegel with some contributions by another writer by the name of Mike Spreeder. And Scott McGeehee and David Siegel might not be household names, but interestingly enough, this is their sixth feature film, which they have directed together over the past 20 years. They've directed such films as Suture, The Deep End, Bee Season, Uncertainty, and What Maisie Knew. But to be honest with you, I have not seen any of these films. And some of them have uh, famous actors who have uh, acted in them, like, for example... Dennis Haysbert, Julianne Moore, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. So Scott McGee and David Siegel have worked with a lot of uh, famous actors. And Montana Story is one of those movies that does not have anybody particularly famous in it. But it is a much better film than I expected it to be. And I, I guess I shouldn't go into a film expecting it to be good or bad. But I was bracing myself for Montana Story to be one of the bad faith-based films. But fortunately, it wasn't. It wasn't a faith-based film in general. And while I don't entirely count faith-based films out, I was still bracing myself because, let's face it, a lot of faith-based films are bad. But Montana's story is actually about two estranged siblings who return home to the sprawling ranch in Montana. They once knew and loved, although that is debatable within the movie, and they confront a deep and bitter family legacy against a mythic American backdrop. And if there is one thing to say about Montana Story, I mean, aside from the really good acting, the cinematographer takes full advantage of the beautiful mountainous countryside 
that encompasses most of Montana. But I think also with that beautiful landscape, there is also some isolation, but not the kind of isolation that you would expect from rural, which is most of Montana. But the character to whom we're introduced first is a young man by the name of Cal, who's played by Owen Teague. And Owen Teague is a Canadian actor who I hadn't seen before, but he does very well in this role. He is, um, he is at first in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming, uh, doing a typical uh, white-collar job, which you actually don't associate with. Wyoming, but then again, Cheyenne is one of their biggest cities, so of course with big cities come many white-collar jobs. But he returns home to Montana because his father has had a stroke and is living back at their Montana ranch on life support. And he is accompanied, before Cal comes home, only by a charismatic nurse by the name of Ace, who is a native of Kenya, and he's played by a man by the name of Gilbert Awar. And uh, Gilbert Awar is another person who I ne- had never seen before, but he does very well playing a guy who is just doing his job and sort of comes in the middle of potential family dysfunction. But not only does Cal return home to oversee the ranch and get his father's financial affairs in order before he passes on, but his older sister, Aaron, who's played by Haley Lou Richardson, also comes back home. And Aaron, like Cal, was raised on this Montana ranch, and she also escaped Montana to live in upstate New York, where she works as a chef. And Haley Lou Richardson is a woman who is five foot nothing, She is of very diminutive stature, but she's a very good actress, and she's had a lot of acting experience, mostly in supporting roles in movies like Split, which was M. Night Shyamalan's comeback movie, where she played one of the victims of uh, James McCoy and his character of several different personalities. I think 23 was the total. She's also been in The Edge of Seventeen, where she acted as the best friend and also later adversary of the character played by Haley Steinfeld. And she's also been in a number of other films as well. But this is probably, I think, her best uh, performance as an actress so far. So Cal and Haley return home to their Montana ranch, and they have to deal with their father on the brink of dying, and being held on, I think, controversially by life support, and also the way that he had raised both of them. It, Yeah, a functional family, or even a semi-functional family, this family actually ends up not being. So there are a lot of struggles from which Cal and Aaron have to work through and overcome. I I put the preposition in the wrong uh, part of the sentence there, but going with me here. And they are, you know, getting a lot of their father's affairs in, in order. And one of the interesting affairs is actually what to do with some of their farm animals, including a 25 year old horse who is literally as old as the character of Aaron, who they affectionately, whose name is uh, Mr. T. 
they don't emphasize whether or not Mr. T is named after the A-Team actor, but um, given that it's a large black horse, that wouldn't be completely out of the question. But Mr. T is, as I said, uh, around 25 years old. He has arthritis in his feet, and Cal is thinking of taking him to the glue factory, whereas Aaron wants to understandably keep him alive. And they kind of go through their own journeys. And and some of this, um, what they go through, how they keep their father's affairs in order might be dull when you hear about them from me describing them to you. But throughout the course of the story and added to the excellent cinematography in this film, it really makes for a very emotional ride. And there's also a great uh, supporting cast of actors Uh, many of whom appear for about five minutes but still leave their mark. For example, there is a neighbor of theirs whose name is Valentina, who's played by a Native American actress named Kimberly Guerrero, who's been in several movies and TV shows over the last 30 years. She was even on an episode of Seinfeld as one of Jerry Seinfeld's potential love interests. There's also some other... um, Native American actors such as Eugene Braverock, who plays a relatively small but memorable role as a Montana native who is selling Aaron a truck as well as a hitch to put her horse in because she's considering taking the horse Mr. T to New York State with her in spite of all the difficulties that would come with that. And there's also a charismatic tow truck driver whose name is Joey, who's played by Asivak Kustachin. Again, only in this movie for about five or ten minutes, but he's a good comic relief character. And he's also not trying to be the class clown. He also acts very genuinely. And I I really uh, remembered all of these roles. So the question that comes to Cal and Aaron's mind is how to put their father's affairs in order and also how to deal with the way he had treated them growing up, which hadn't always been very kindly as you gradually learn as the movie goes on. And I hate to say anything more about the film because I have a rule here on words on film, no spoilers, which I try to stick to as much as possible. Although sometimes the plot revelation in, in this film is hanging on the back of my throat and I really want to get it out there, but I'm not going to do that. All I can say though, is that Montana story was an unexpected surprise. It premiered uh, last year at the uh, Toronto International Film Festival and just went into wide release or wide enough release compared to Top Gun Maverick by the independent film company Bleecker Street. And I did not expect very much from this film, but I was very impressed not only by the cinematography, but also the acting involved. I thought that Haley Lou Richardson and Owen Teague, who are in reality no relation to one another, had me completely convinced as half-siblings, and they turned into a performance that made me feel as if they had grown up with this man who is sort of in a vegetative state throughout 
much of this film. It's a very pleasant surprise. I was very impressed by it, and Montana Story gets my rating of a knockout. And I think that it could have been told from the perspective of other people. For example, there is the the character Ace, who I said is a native of Kenya and is the only black person in this movie and probably is one of the only black people in the entire state of Montana. I think it would have been interesting to have told the movie from his perspective, especially considering that he is a native of Kenya and he's coming and he's settling in such a remote area like Montana, which let's be honest is not probably the highest on a lot of immigrants list to settle, not compared to, New York, Atlanta, L.A., you name the coastal city. So I would have loved to have known how a a Kenyan native would end up in Montana, let alone work his way up to a nursing degree to stay there. I think that would have been a, a, a good angle for Montana's story, but I do think that the story between... Cal and Aaron, those two characters, are compelling enough so that there could have been other perspectives to have told the story, either from the Kenyan immigrant perspective or from the Native American perspective. But maybe that could have been for another film. I, I don't exactly know, but I will say that I'm not loving Montana's story for what it could have been. I love it for what it is. And for the, the story that directors and writers Scott McGeehee and David Siegel chose to tell, it's an excellent film. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Hollywood Stargirl, which I have to admit, I have a rule on Words on Film, this show to which you're listening, where I don't watch movies that are sequels unless I've seen the original. However, I was not actually aware that Hollywood Stargirl was a sequel when I first saw it, but sure enough, it actually is. Stargirl was a a movie that came out on Disney Plus in 2020, and the reason that I missed it was because I actually wasn't subscribing to Disney Plus when it was released on March 13th, 2020, right before the pandemic hit. But unlike uh, Tiger King, Stargirl... I think kind of went a little bit under the radar and it is uh, the original movie star girl is based on a novel of the same name by Jerry Spinelli, whose books I literally grew up uh, reading, especially maniac McGee, but the novel of the same name was written in 2000. So took a little while for star girl to become um, a movie. Hollywood star girl is actually based on, um, is actually based on another part of the uh, novel uh, Star Girl, and there there's a se- there's a novel sequel to the book Star Girl, written by Jer- also written by Jerry Spinelli. That's called Love Star Girl, 
And I think the fact that this movie is a sequel probably explains why there's no explanation why the girl in this movie has the name Stargirl. But that's not her nickname, at least not as far as I know. That is actually her real name. The movie is directed by Julia Hart, who also wrote the screenplay in collaboration with Jordan Horowitz. And I actually think that a woman not only having a hand in writing the screenplay, but also directing the movie served as an asset to this film. Because honestly, I was rolling my eyes when I was going through the list of movies that I needed to see for this show because I thought... It's a Disney movie, with a live-action Disney movie with a girl as the central character. This movie's going to be cheesy. And surprisingly, it wasn't. And while I don't mean to sound sexist and write off Disney films, live-action ones with girls in them, they're not nearly as good as the animated films with girls as the central characters. It just seems like the music that's in a lot of these movies, particularly not only Disney Plus originals, but all, but especially Disney Channel originals, is that they include music that is completely forgettable, it's prepackaged, and I guess maybe it's me being a millennial who's approaching 40, but these films haven't really done it for me, but then again, I'm not their market either. But in Hollywood Stargirl, we're reintroduced to Stargirl Caraway, who's played by a phenomenally talented young singer-songwriter whose name is Grace Vanderwall. And Grace Vanderwall first burst onto the scene uh, about five years ago when she was on America's Got Talent, and Simon Cowell uh, absolutely uh, gushed about her singing and songwriting ability. I don't know if she actually won America's Got Talent, but she definitely made it to the finals, and since signing with Disney, she seems to be doing very well for herself. And I'll just say this before getting into the uh, story of Hollywood Stargirl. When I saw Grace Vanderwall on America's Got Talent years ago, I thought to myself, I, I was very impressed by her talent, but at the same time, I also thought to myself, please don't make her a Hollywood casualty like two out of the three uh, kids on, actually all three of the kids on different strokes, one of whom, Todd Bridges, is actually uh, getting his life together and doing relatively well now. But, oh, man, there there are so many tragic stories about kids who make it in Hollywood and then when they reach their 20s, they might as well have reached their 80s because casting directors don't cast them anymore. There are a lot of exceptions to those rules, like Ron Howard, Kurt Russell, Jodie Foster, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but there are far more former child actors who follow that rule than are exceptions to it. I hope Grace Vanderwall is not one of those people, and I hope other child actors like Jacob Tremblay don't follow that rule as well. They might, but I'm just saying I always hope they don't. But it looks like Grace Vanderwall is, is doing relatively well for herself. She's got a good head on her shoulders, and she plays the role of Stargirl Caraway in this film very well. So, in this film, Stargirl is moving with her mother, Anna, who's played by Judy Greer, out of a town called Micah and into um, L.A. 
because her mother, uh, Judy Greer's character, has gotten a role as, or rather, has gotten a job as a costume designer on a movie set. So during this summer that her mother, Anna, has put down temporary roots, Stargirl is free to go about Los Angeles, which is actually probably a teenager's dream to a certain extent. But she actually befriends the son of her mother's landlord, whose name is Evan, who's played by an actor named Elijah Richardson. And at first you think there is going to be some romantic chemistry between the two of them, but it actually turns out there isn't so much. And I I thought that was actually a very refreshing twist. I also really liked how um, Evan, along with his older brother, Iggy, who's played by... Oh, excuse me. His older brother... Mike, who's played by Noah Talifero, is are collaborating to make a movie together, and they want Stargirl to be the star of the movie while setting her up to be the romantic lead. But one thing I really liked is that, and this is probably because of Julia Hart's contribution to the screenplay, they didn't set uh, Stargirl, Grace Vanderwall's character, up to be the manic pixie dream girl like Natalie Portman was in the movie Garden State and what Kirsten Dunst allegedly was in the movie Elizabethtown. Although I do think that Kirsten Dunst gets a little bit too much flack for being that character trope. Um, But anyway, so I, I, I like how Stargirl is written as a woman with her own ambitions, her own fears, her own self-doubt, and she works through that, particularly as she tries to befriend a woman who started out in the recording industry auspiciously, but then released one album in the 90s and didn't release anything else afterwards. That character's name was Roxanne Martell, and she's played in this movie by Uma Thurman. And I, I thought that the relationship between Stargirl and Roxanne was not amazing, but it was realistic, especially how she is teaming up with somebody who, is, who hasn't released an album in 25 years. And even though she's still in uh, residing in L.A., she's basically given up on her dreams of music superstardom, let alone just playing music in general. And I think that the way Uma Thurman approached that character was also refreshingly original and one that I haven't seen in a lot of films. So I was going into Hollywood Stargirl thinking that this would be a typical Disney film that props up some Disney starlet and gives them really bland and overproduced music to sing. But Hollywood Stargirl, for somebody who has not seen the the original uh, for which Hollywood Stargirl is a sequel, I was impressed by it. I was impressed by the acting by just about everyone involved, particularly Grace Vanderwall, who for only her second film um, anchors this movie very well, but she also showcases her talent as a singer, a songwriter, and a ukulele player extremely well here. She started off um, on a TV talent show, and I think that whoever is 
rather representing her as an agent or as a talent coach is doing really well for her. So I didn't expect Hollywood star girl to be a knockout in my book, but it is, it may not have been a film that was made for me and it would probably appeal more to Gen Z the girls than it would to me, but I was very impressed by the acting in this film, the way that it sidestepped some of the typical Hollywood tropes. And it took a lot of risks, particularly for a Disney film that's aimed at a younger audience, either of teen or tween girls. But I thought that the risks it took were very uh, good. And most of them paid off really well as well. So even though I've not seen the original Stargirl film, I was surprisingly impressed by Hollywood Stargirl, and I can't knock it for um, anything else, honestly. Not that I'd look to knock it, but I'm just saying that I was expecting not to enjoy this film, but I was pleasantly surprised. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Metal Lords. And Metal Lords is a Netflix original film that premiered on the platform a couple of weeks ago, specifically on, oh wow, many weeks ago, April 8th, 2022. But I didn't get around to reviewing it until now. And this movie is directed by Peter Sollett, who is no stranger to feature films, let alone feature films about teenagers. Uh, before Metal Lords, he directed a movie called Raising Victor Vargas. That was his big screen debut back in 2002. And that was a film that premiered at a lot of uh, film festivals. And he followed that up years later with Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, which starred Michael Sarah and Kat Dennings, both very talented actors. He then did not direct a feature film until 2015 when he directed the film Freeheld, which stars Julianne Moore, the actor, the actor who used to be known as Ellen Page, but who is now Elliot Page. But back then she was Ellen Page before she had a sex change. And Steve Carell, amongst other people. And that film, I think, was... Oscar bait, but it also had some good performances and some, and some things that were particularly memorable. I especially loved Steve Carell in that movie, but, um, metal Lords is Peter Solitz first film since free held. And he is going back to high school where two friends try to form a heavy metal band with a cellist for a battle of the bands competition within their high school. And what really surprised me about this film is this is a film that takes place uh, present day. So the kids who are attending high school, I think are generation are Gen Z. And I would have never would have thought that any kids in Gen Z would have been into heavy metal music because Rock and heavy metal, especially heavy metal, have taken a backseat to a lot of pop music. But then again, 
I'm not in high school. I don't even work in a high school. So I don't exactly know how Gen Z uh, particularly works or operates. But I had the feeling as I was watching this, even though this is written by an adult, and it does have some Gen Z actors playing high school students here, I th- this movie, Metal Lords, felt more like an accurate representation. It felt more like an accurate representation of kids in high school now than the Rebel Wilson film Senior Year did. I I felt like Senior Year was either a parody of high school now or a misguided representation of what high school is like now. But the characters in Metal Lords felt particularly real. First, there is the uh, kid who is obsessed with heavy metal, not just the heavy metal that's coming out now, but also some of the older acts like Metallica and King Diamond. His name is Hunter, and he's played by Adrian Greensmith. And he is passionate about heavy metal almost to a fault, kind of where he intentionally alienates himself from the rest of the student body and sometimes to his own disadvantage. He is bullied in this film, I think, in a realistic kind of way, but also in a way where he almost invites people to... Uh, bully him or to ostracize him. And that's not condoning bullying at all. That's just something that some students do in high school. And I know that firsthand from having been in high school. I, I knew a lot of people like that, not necessarily kids who were into metal, but kids who didn't fit in and didn't even really try to be cooperative with anyone. So I thought that Adrian Greensmith played this role very well. And he befriends, actually, the main protagonist of the story, who's a young kid named Kevin, who's played by Jaden Martell. And Jaden Martell is a very talented actor who makes me feel really old. He was born on January 4th, 2003, when I was a freshman in college. So thank you so much, Jaden. You make me feel so old. But Jaden, even though he's only uh, 19 years old, has had extensive acting experience in many big budget films as of late. He was in the movie Knives Out. He was in the big screen adaptation of It, and he was one of the standout actors in that movie. He's also been in some indie movies uh, like St. Vincent with Bill Murray, Melissa McCarthy, and Naomi Watts, which was a decent film, but it had some flaws. And he was also in another relatively flawed movie that went under the radar, but was still, it still had its merits called Midnight Special, where he actually played not the main character of the film, but the central character, the one who is trying to be saved by the protagonist. So Jaden Martell is a very talented actor. He's had his mix of being in very light and very dark films, and he does very well with um, when he's acting in a film, and this is no exception. And at first, you think that Kevin is one of these unpopular kids who, um, you know, is in marching band and he gets ostracized as a result. But what's fascinating about the film is the way it treats the dynamic of popular students. For example, there are some popular kids here who form a band who play a lot of Ed Sheeran covers and songs that you youngins and Gen Z would definitely like. And you would think that this kid would be a complete asshole, but he ends up actually being a very nice kid. 
And that actually plays into the plot of the film very well. And you also think that Kevin is going to develop a relationship, even a temporary one with the popular blonde girl in his class and who's one of the more popular students. And you'd think that it was going that way. There's even a scene where they meet at a party. He's obviously drunk and you think that he's going to do something humiliating like vomit on her. And I was just waiting for the opportunity for him to vomit on her. But uh, he does vomit, but it actually ends up being later. And once it actually happens, it took me by surprise. So I like how the movie sidestepped what what otherwise would have been predictable gross out fare for a high school film. But when I mentioned that Kevin had, you know, of course, a crush on or an attraction towards one of the popular girls and the conversation between them is realistically awkward, he actually develops a relationship with an outcast other member of uh, the marching band who is a very talented cellist whose name is Emily, who's played by a very talented young actress named Isis Hainsworth, who I believe is a Scottish actress, but I don't know for sure. She's been in a couple of films, like the recent uh, big screen adaptation of Emma, which uh, starred Anya Taylor-Joy as the titular character. But here, um, she plays someone not only to whom Kevin develops a relationship, probably even a stronger relationship than the popular girl in his class. But also Kevin is trying to convince Emily to be the bassist, not just the cellist for the hard rock group whose name I, I cannot mention on the air because this is a PG rated show to which families could listen. But the rebellious hunter wants to call this group skull And that's all I'm going to say about the title or the band name. And this is a band name that you could not get away with in any high school in the entire United States of America. And it is kind of amazing that they hold on to this uh, name throughout the majority of the movie, especially when Dean Swanson, who's played by Sufe Bradshaw, explicitly tells Hunter that in order to enter the Battle of the Bands, their act has to be appropriate and a name like skull and trust me, it's not pronounced that that way. Yeah. Is flagrantly inappropriate for any high school. Uh, but anyway, this movie details how they, how the three misfits Hunter, Kevin and Emily are coming together to form the, their um, heavy metal group in Probably a demographic, not necessarily an age group, but a generation that has, to a lot of people, probably including me, um, not known heavy metal music or are not particularly well versed in it. But I try not to underestimate kids in high school because I think they are a lot smarter and a lot more experienced Um, particularly when it comes to pop culture, then adults give them credit for being. So I try to make that another rule on words on film. I may be getting older high school, but high school kids haven't really changed. If anything, they've probably gotten smarter and more, um, aware of other people, not just in their hometown, but also all over the world than they were when I was in high school. So 
The movie deals with the dynamics and the dysfunctions of these three um, misfits who are into heavy metal and also the strong reluctance of Hunter to have a girl in their group. Although being a guy who used to be into heavy metal myself, I had a heavy metal uh, show when I was in college. I could name several metal groups who had women in them, including some that had women lead singers. It's not something that is completely unheard of, but I, I think Hunter is is very uh, myopic, but in, in a way that I think that a, a lot of high school uh, students are at one point or another. He also has a fraught relationship with his plastic surgeon father, who is wealthy enough for him to afford the the instruments for his heavy metal group, but he also does it by using his father's credit card without permission. And uh, Dr. Sylvester, by the way, is played by an actor named Brett Gelman, who is best known for being on stranger things amongst other uh, movies and TV shows. And there are also some very uh, unique cameos by some heavy metal artists who are actually so surprising to me that I don't want to give their cameos away. But there is actually a very cool cameo in the uh, near the end of the film by Joe Manganiello, who plays a former high school student to whom Hunter idolizes uh, because this high school student used to be in a heavy metal band. But what Joe Manganiello's character does now in modern day is actually quite surprising. And Joe Manganiello is... Bar none, one of the coolest people on the planet. I'm gushing a little bit, but I, I have so much respect for that guy, and he has not disappointed me in any movie he's been in. And Metal Lords is no exception. So Metal Lords does have some weaknesses. For example, it has a running time of one hour, 37 minutes, and 20 minutes of that film really drags. And I do think that if the movie had edited some of that parts out. It might have been better paced and stronger. So Metal Lords is still a film that really impressed me, if only for the original story, which was written by D.B. Weiss, which was not based, by the way, on any other book, TV show, video game, graphic novel, you name it. It is an original film. And I give it a very high checkout because... It impressed me because it felt like an authentic high school movie. The, the kids in the film, not only the three principal protagonists, but also some of the supporting characters, ones who were adversaries and also ones who were a bit more friendly, felt realistically so. And the relationships between all these characters felt really authentic. And the, the pacing of the film could have been a bit better, which is why I'm reluctant to give this movie my rating of a knockout, but I was mostly impressed by it. I just think that the pacing could have been a lot better.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show this week, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters or on streaming and or on streaming for the week of June 6th through June 10th, 2022. And truth be told, according to my records, there is only one film that is coming out in theaters on June 10th, and that movie is Jurassic World Dominion. Now, this movie came out four years after the uh, last Jurassic World movie, and that that last Jurassic World movie was uh, pretty disappointing, to be honest with you. I really liked the first... Jurassic World. Of course, Jurassic Park is bar none a great movie. It's one that stood the test of time and it was definitely a um a turning point in Steven Spielberg's career because Steven Spielberg had the distinction of making two movies in 1993. The first, Jurassic Park, is not only one of the greatest films the greatest action films ever made. It was also the highest grossing film of 1993. And if that wasn't enough, Steven Spielberg also directed Schindler's List, which is not only one of the greatest movies of all time and probably one of my top 10 best movies ever or favorite movies ever, but it, it also won best picture at the Oscars. So 1993 and 1994 was a great year for Steven Spielberg. Now, Jurassic World was not directed by uh, Steven Spielberg. It was directed by, and I'm just giving you some background because I really don't have too much to tell you. It was directed by Colin Trevorrow. And Colin Trevorrow had some big shoes to fill, especially compared to Steven Spielberg. But I think if you consider that Steven Spielberg directed The Lost World Jurassic Park, which was okay, but not nearly as good as the original Jurassic Park. I think that Devereaux certainly had um, (laughs) not quite as tough an act to follow, especially following Jurassic Park 3, which I didn't even see. Now, he did not come back for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. That was J.A. Bayona. And Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom was... I think had great special effects, but was overall a disappointment and also really didn't make any sense, uh, particularly when it came to the dynamics of the Jurassic World Island. But I'll get into that later. I'll just give you a, a brief description of Jurassic World Dominion, which is the third movie of the Jurassic World trilogy and the sixth Jurassic Park franchise movie. And they say it will be the last I don't know if that's true, but four years after, spoiler alert, the destruction of Island Nublar, excuse me, Isla Nublar, dinosaurs now live and hunt alongside humans all over the world. Hmm, I don't know. Uh, This fragile balance will reshape the future and determine once and for all whether human beings are to remain the apex predators on a planet they now share with history's most fearsome creatures in a new era. I do not know how that dynamic is going to work, but considering they've already made this big budget spectacular, it better work. So returning to this film is not only Chris Pratt as Owen Grady and Bryce Dallas Howard as uh, Claire Deering, 
both of whom were in the first two Jurassic World movies, and they have since developed a <laughs> a mutual um, attraction to one another. They may even be married in this film for all I know, but they're returning for this film. But even more surprisingly, Sam Neill and Laura Dern are also repri- uh, reprising their roles as Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler, respectively. Not only that... But Jeff Goldblum is reprising his role as Ian Malcolm for the first time in, doing the math right now, 25 years. He last played uh, Ian Malcolm in the movie uh, The Lost World Jurassic Park. And also, there are some other uh, actors who are coming back. Like, for instance, uh, B.D. Wong was in the original Jurassic Park, and he's returning as Dr. Henry Wu. I think he's been in, I think he was actually in the last uh, Jurassic World movie, Fallen Kingdom. So Jurassic World Dominion is a film I will see. Am I looking forward to it? Mm, I don't know. Because Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom disappointed me. Jurassic World was, uh, the original Jurassic World was excellent. Not as great as Jurassic Park, because Jurassic Park you cannot beat. It just, just because you can't. But Jurassic World, I thought, was the second best of the Jurassic Park movies. Hopefully, Jurassic World Dominion will be at least as good as Jurassic World, if not a little bit better. Is Will it be better than Jurassic Park? I highly doubt it, but I will see it, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed the, or rather, given you a spoken word preview of the one film, one film that is subject to being released in theaters on June 10th, 2022, it's now time for me to get into my next segment of what's coming up next, which is where I run down the movies that are subject to being released on streaming for the week of June 3rd through June 10th, 2022. And last week, there weren't many original films that were premiering on Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, you name the streaming platform, or at least not many that I had time to see. However, this week is an exception. For example, on Wednesday, June 8th, on Netflix, there is a film that is premiering that is a Netflix original that is called Hustle. And this is a film that stars Adam Sandler. And before that scares you off too much, it doesn't look like this is a Happy Madison production, which is a really great thing because it seems like Adam Sandler's kind of holding himself back from his production company, uh, or rather with his production company. But I think as he's moved away from his dumb comedies and gone into dramas, he's been really successful. And I'm not saying he shouldn't, go back to doing comedy. What I'm saying is that he is still a really good dramatic actor, but his his comedies have been lacking as of recently. And I think he's he's going back to his comedic tactics 
which served him well in the 90s of doing, you know, stupid characters with stupid voices. But I think as Adam Sandler is reaching the age of 60, which he will be in a few years, that's not going to serve him very well. But I do think in terms of comedy, he has a comeback all set for him, or at least he's going to be that way. But in the meantime, his dramas are doing really well. Like, for example... In the winter of 2019, he acted in Uncut Gems, which was fantastic. A lot of people didn't like it because it was about a um, a scumbag, but he, Adam Sandler played a really good scumbag, so there you go. But in Hustle, does he play a scumbag? I don't exactly know, but the premise of the film is that he is a washed-up basketball scout who discovers a phenomenal streetball player while in Spain and sees the prospect as his opportunity to get back into the NBA. Sounds like a great plot to me. It's certainly one we've seen before. It may have been one of those 14 standard um, Hollywood plots that they tell you about, where there is uh, a scout who's trying to find somebody, and he ends up finding somebody phenomenally talented. In fact, there was an Albert Brooks movie back in 1994 that co-starred Brendan Fraser and Diane Wiest, that was called The Scout. And I liked that film. I thought Albert Brooks was great in it. But it was about the New York Yankees. So it was um, one of those films that I'm kind of preconditioned to hate, especially considering that the Yankees suck, <laughs> in my humble opinion. But getting back to the movie Hustle, it stars Adam Sandler, Ben Foster, Robert Duvall, Queen Latifah, Jaleel White, we haven't seen him in a while, and several other actors. So you got some really good actors here. Ben Foster is probably one of the most underrated actors in Hollywood, but he continues to make great film after great film. I'm very interested to see Jaleel White in this uh, movie because I know he's trying to shake off the stigma of having played Steve Urkel, and he hasn't quite done that yet, but... He's, he's been actually in some very good films where he's, pl he's played some strong supporting performances. And getting back to what I was saying about Grace Vanderwall, I hope she doesn't become a childhood Hollywood casualty. To Julia White's credit, I almost said credit, he um, has not become that. So all the power to him. But Hustle is a movie that I definitely will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Also on Wednesday, June 8th, there are two other Netflix originals that are documentaries. One is called Gladbeck, The Hostage Crisis, and, the, uh, and obviously it's about a hostage crisis. The other one sounds like a now-typical Netflix documentary about a cult, because here's the title of the film, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. <laughs> that already sounds chilling as it is. I mean, cults are already scary in and of themselves, but religious cults, they're even scarier because they... There is a charismatic leader who just makes their um, followers' lives a living hell, and they do it in the name of God. And there is a special place in hell for these sons of bitches. That's what I'll say to you right there. But anyway, will I see these documentaries? Maybe. But it's likely that I will see a, a Netflix original that is going to be premiering on Friday, June 10th, and that movie is called Trees of Peace. And that certainly sounds like a unique film, and it is, as far as I know, an American film. But 
It is a film that takes place in April of 1994, interestingly enough, and it's probably based on a true story. It's about four women from different backgrounds and beliefs who are trapped and hiding during the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. That's a very heavy topic and one that was covered in the American film Hotel Rwanda very well one of Don Cheadle's best performances. But these women are fighting for survival against all odds, and that survival unites them in an unbreakable sisterhood, which I can obviously imagine. It is directed and written by a black woman named Alana Brown, and I'm just looking at her filmography right now. This is her feature film debut. Before this, she directed a film that was called 1426 Chelsea Street, but that was a short that she directed in uh, 2012. So I am definitely going to see this film. I will make it a promise to see this movie, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.